my dear friend Catherine Terman. Like, thanks for doing this. You know, it's any excuse to talk to you, Don. Always a pleasure. Oh, Peshaw. I just wanted to be able to say Peshaw. I don't know, but uh, that's awesome. I, that's the thing you only see written usually. Peshaw. I know. I used to hear it in the monkeys all the time too. Really? Like, yeah, okay. it was a Mickey Dole. That the first time I ever heard that word was on the monkeys, and I remember like being like, I don't know what that means, but that's a great word. And I'm yes. trying to misuse it all the time, but you know, another band name potentially. Oh, oh. Well, for those of you, for those that don't know, you know, Catherine and I are always coming up with <laughs> band names for our imaginary band that um, we'll have to come up with some other like a star-studded supergroup. Yes. Know? Members of Peshaw and Sister, well, it could be Sister Dawn and Brother Catherine. We can mix it up. Ooh. Oh, I like it. <laughs> you know, yeah, we have no, we have no issues here with that, though. So, for those of you, for for people listening who don't really know, like I've been a big fan of hard rock magazines, you know, since I was in high school, and you know, Metal Edge, Circus. Hit Parader, Cream, all those magazines that were, you know, Faces Rocks, all those magazines. But it was it was rip when I got into high school. You know, it's that weird turning of age, especially when you're a, a, a music fan, where things start to matter to you a little more than just who's got the poster in the center of the magazine this month. And right. it was, you know, I never imagined that you being one of my favorite writers would even end up becoming not only a very good friend, but someone who would eventually inspire me to write my own book and even work on it with me. So um, did that make you never want to do that again? Oh, no. You know what? Uh, As you may have discovered, there aren't uh, a lot of monetary rewards in this world, you know, in, in the rock and roll journalism world. So if, you know, if I can inspire someone that's, uh, you know, that's worth 20 bucks. No, that's, you know, that makes it all worthwhile. It really does. Um, Cause I like, I didn't really have that many mentors, so to speak, not the band though. We can talk about them too. The mentors are all <laughs> fun. El Duce. But um, no, I like to help people out, uh, you know, connect people, help with writing, whatever I can do. It always you know, the pay, I don't know what movie did pay it forward come from, but whatever that term became popular, um, I agree with pay it forward. Well, you know, and it's one of those things where, I, you know, I, you know, I'd be more than honored to inspire someone to do something that doesn't make them money. You know, it's just, <laughs> it, but it's, the, it's the happiness factor of it and the, the, the pride factor of it also, because, I never in a million years thought I would write a book, you know, and there was something really, I mean, it was really awesome to get to, you know, like I said, not just be friends with you, but to work with you on it. And so is it a lot of pressure for you to know that maybe people or other writers might consider you as an influencer or like, or as an influence or a mentor or. Um, no, I don't think that's pressure at all because there aren't that many, frankly, <laughs> or they haven't come to the forefront. But I mean, when you think of a musician and, you know, all the people coming up to him after a show, all the people sending the messages, you know, uh, what do I get? You know, six messages a year from people mm-hmm. saying, 
oh, I read your stuff or, oh, I like your stuff. So it's not overwhelming. It's welcome, actually. So yeah. bring them on. Um, yeah, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't happen a ton. So when it does, you know, I know it's real. They had to, like, you know, find me and, and reach out. So, no, it's it's no pressure at all. I mean, I feel, you know, as they say in the Alice Cooper world, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But... You know, it's still uh, it's still great. No pressure. You know, and I feel like even since I started writing myself you know, about, you know, 10 or 11 years ago or even before, you know, because I used to just write for myself and for my friends when I was in high school that you learn very quickly that the music writers of journalists or they're definitely the unsung heroes of the industry because I love how you said that, like, you know, the bands get swarmed by fans after the show and this, that, and the other, but then it's like, well, what about the person or the people who actually wrote about these bands when they were just eating tuna out of a can on the sunset strip, you know, and now they're, so it's kind of this cool thing that I got to immerse myself into that world and totally understand that it's a gratifying, but sometimes a thankless kind of thing. Yes. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know where my ego is. I don't think it's huge. So I don't feel like I'm, uh, you know, Oh, no one knows who I am. And uh, I'm toiling in obscurity. I don't feel that or need that really. So, um, yeah, so that's okay for me. I didn't get into this expecting any glory, you know, but obviously musicians, you know, Kurt Cobain would say differently, but you know, they kind of do expect to be idolized and, and worshiped and all that. But yeah, I mean, I guess some writers are definitely that way. The people like, a, I mean, maybe in the rock world, the Lester bangs or, um, you know, there's definitely some writers who have huge egos and like to be bigger than their stories or in their stories or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it, it is fun to be recognized or have people remember your stories, but it's not, um, you know, I feel like what you said before we started recording, you like to, you know, bring light to bands that you like. And that's kind of what I like to uh, find things that I like music or otherwise, and let the world know, I think this is cool and check it out and, you know, help people and, and a, you know, an arts assist on the side, I guess, is sort of how I feel I am. It really is, because I always say that to me, one of the most gratifying things about it is when um, it's like when a band or an artist will actually message me and say, usually it's like, I mean, not a band, a fan of an artist would message me and say, you know, I just discovered my f- new favorite band because of you know something that you wrote and there was a band uh, a few probably about six or seven years ago called gypsy hawk they were from uh la and they were out on tour here in the states i forgot who they were touring with but they were somewhere almost out west you know like coming into the you know or like the midwest maybe and their guitar player messaged me and said we just sold merch to this kid who said that he heard of us on your blog. And I just remember thinking like, 
that that's why I do it. That makes exactly. more like you can't put a value, you know, or like a price tag on that feeling. I totally agree. That's exactly the same. And even, yeah, I mean, I got a message recently in the last few weeks from a band that I wrote about way back when, I guess in the nineties. And, um, you know, I tagged him in something on my Facebook post and he said, you know, you were always there for us and, you know, standing up for the bands and Mm -hmm. you had that same passion we did. And thank you for that. And we appreciate you. And I mean, yeah, that's, that was, uh, really touching that doesn't happen a lot but i appreciated it and when that does happen it's like wow okay that 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 made it all worth it you know yes it, totally i completely agree yeah even though it'd be nice to, I mean, you, you know you know buy me a cup of coffee though when you're in town <laughs> you know i know they're probably as broke as i am <laughs> you know? i can't tell you how many bands i've i've brought beer to you know backstage and they were just yes. like Thank you for not making us have to drink PBR again. For, you know, I'm like, I'm like, hey, look, I'm I'm bringing you low and brow or whatever. You know? <laughs> like, it's got the umlauts or something. Hey, you know, Molly Crew here. You know, exactly. but um, so we were talking about the writers, um, you know, like the classic writers and the music journalists and whatnot. So, like, going back in time for you, like, what was what was it that made you want to be a music writer? Cause I know some people go into like other forms of journalism, you know, like some people are doing, I don't know, editorial journalism. Some people want to do political work or whatever, but what, who was, who was your inspiration? Um, that's a good question because I don't think there was one. <laughs> my, my inspiration <laughs> was the, I would say my inspiration was the anonymous bad writers out there. Um, no, I mean, in, in I, love short, that. <laughs> I mean, in short, my, my story is, you know, I was always a huge reader. Um, I wasn't much of a writer. I mean, I, <clears throat> in school, I, I got A's in English. That's kind of the only class I got A's in and I enjoyed writing papers and I guess it would have been, you know, criticism, you know, in this book, I felt that the, the protagonists, you know, lost their way. You know, so I guess I I did well at that sort of thing. And then out of high school, I was going to see bands and I loved music and I was a fanatic and I would pick up all the local papers. Um, You know, actually, we had a licorice pizza props to the movie, you know, which is the record store. And there were all the the zines and the stuff there. And I picked those up. I'll be like, oh, this is not good. I mean, I could do this. And that was really what started it. I'm like, all right, I've gotten some praise for you know, doing well in Mrs. Jorgensen's English class. I'm going to see bands and this writing doesn't seem that difficult. And that was kind of the impetus. And, and, you know, then I'd started writing before I went to journalism school, but I went to journalism school because I thought, you know, I, I, it's not that hard. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to do anything that involved science or math. Um, so I thought, well, I enjoy this. I can do it. Let's go to journalism school. And I mean, I'll say obviously, but maybe not obviously. There wasn't a music journalism minor or anything. So I just went to regular old journalism school and I was not set on becoming a music writer at all. I was just wanting a journalism degree. That said, I did cover music because <laughs> I enjoyed it. And I wrote for the, the school paper, which was the Daily Trojan, USC. And um, once again, even back then, I was writing about stuff that I liked and I thought they should like. 
But back then, USC was a super preppy school, if you remember that whole era and term. And I was mm-hmm. forcing. Oh, them, Aaron. yeah. Yeah, I was forcing them twisted sister and stuff. So, um, <laughs> you know, I was I started young doing that sort of here's what I like and you should like it. And I don't care if you would rather mm-hmm. listen to Yacht Rock, which didn't exist. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think there was any one person per se who said, you know, who was like, I want to be like them or their writing is so good. That said, I had a lot of favorite authors, mm-hmm. um, but I, I wasn't a big, you know, in my formative years of whatever, 12 to 20, I wasn't reading much music stuff. I mean, I was reading Joan Didion and I was reading, uh, you know, as a kid, Nancy Drew. I mean, I just read, you know, every course books, especially as a kid. So yeah, mm-hmm. I just read a lot. So I guess I knew and liked good writing across genres and that kind of, um, you know, again, there was never a time when I said, I want to be like that, but I was, it was always just my world. That's so funny. Cause even when I was younger, like before I even thought I wanted to be any kind of a writer or even consider myself one, I looking back, I, I always gravitated towards those really poorly written biographies of bands that were you do you know what i'm talking about like it was like but like the story of motley Crue, right that was like a paperback book that was about like that thick that basically was nothing but like circus and hit parader articles like smashed into a book well you know it's funny i will say two of the first you know before the whole wave of band and artist biographies Two of the first books I read were No One Here Gets Out Alive, The, the Doors mm-hmm. one. And then, of course, um, am I going to get the name wrong? The legendary Led Zeppelin one. Hammer of the Gods. Yes, Hammer of the Gods. So I read those two, you know, numerous times and loved them. Mm-hmm. But I, don't, I never had the thought like, I wish I'd written this or I could have done this. I just thoroughly enjoyed them. And I'm like, this is my, I just guess I felt, oh, this rock world is what I love. But mm-hmm. I, in terms of the writing in the book. That wasn't a thought, but yeah, those were two early ones that I definitely loved. And I liked the scandalous stuff too. Like there was a famous book called Hollywood Babylon. Yes. Is, um, I believe that's, is it Kenneth Anger? I think maybe, I don't know. I don't remember who, was, but, but I know, I know the, yeah, like the all book. the old yeah. Hollywood stories and all that. But I also read, you know, I was reading D.H. Lawrence and Pride and Prejudice and, and, you know, all the, you know, Shakespeare, all the usual English student stuff. So mm-hmm. I think I had a, a pretty well-rounded um, sense of, of the writing world, I guess. Well, so, you know, you were just talking about like LA. So you were born in LA and you lived there, you know, grew up there. Like, so you pretty much grew up witnessing the whole scene, like that LA sunset strip scene coming up, like, that was a pretty exciting time, but like to you from where you were at, was, was it, did you know it was going to be that it was something super special or magical or did you kind of, was it just kind of like, ah, this is just my local scene? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I felt it was just my local scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, because then this was pre-internet and right. I didn't know what was happening in uh, Atlanta or New Orleans or Seattle or, or London necessarily. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, I guess I didn't think bigger picture. I should have. I didn't even keep all my ticket stubs and all that stuff, which if I'd been smart, I would have, or flyers or whatever. I have some of them, definitely. Mm-hmm. But no, I think, I mean, that scene was like, I graduated high school and college in the 80s. So mm-hmm. um, I was definitely busy doing other things, but I was also, I would go to school, go to my job after school and then go out to the sunset strip. You know, I did that for years and years. And so it was just kind of my life. And now when I look back, I know it was super special um, and that it, it launched a million careers and MTV went crazy and, and people from the Midwest and all over the world moved to the strip to well, the strip, LA Hollywood to, to make it. So yeah, but at the time it was just, I guess when I was, you know, in the eye of the hurricane, I suppose you could say, and uh, not that it felt calm, but I could definitely say I was just kind of like in the middle of it. And it seemed my life, um, which was very exciting. It was very hard to kind of get out of that or when it went away. I mean, I will say for me, it didn't really go away till the mm, maybe mid or mid 90s, because I also covered, you know, even though I was out seeing, um, you know, Wasp and Romeo and uh, all these bands of the early 80s, Armored Saint, whatever, uh, most of them whom are still around. Then I also I had a column in BAM magazine and then I was writing about System of a Down, Rage Against the Machine, Stone Temple Pilots. So I was doing all the 90s, the, the rock 90s bands. So, you know, I felt it, it, you know, I just wasn't about the Sunset Strip scene. So it lasted quite a long time for me. And I can't even remember. I think... I think BAM, I mean, maybe BAM shut down or they canceled my column after some years or something. Mm -hmm. But when the column went away, it was really hard for me not to go out constantly. I still went out a lot, of course, but, you know, I was going out to two or three places a night and always writing in my head. I don't know if that's something you do, but you see something and you're like, oh, I have to talk about this. And, Mm -hmm. oh, what did he do during that song? And, and, you know, oh, they did a cover of that. Um, So I my mind was always working to think about what I was going to write about. So it was hard for me to get out of that mindset. I don't know if I ever did. It's very hard to kind of break that habit of always observing and wanting to write. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't feel I was in the middle of anything super special though. Now I look back and I'm like, Oh my God. Um, when I tell people the things I've done, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I went into the studio when guns were making appetite for destruction or, you know, I saw Stone Temple Pilots when they were Mighty Joe Young or, mm-hmm. you know, I was in a hotel when Saigon Kit tried to throw uh, a TV out the window, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I've got all the good stories, I guess. But then it just seemed like, wow, I have a fun life. But now I realize it was amazingly special, does not exist now. And will not be duplicated yeah and especially in the time period that was not a very easy time period i would assume to be a female uh writer who was yeah striving for professionalism and to be looked at as a professional so how how hard was that for you to find yourself immersed in this Almost, this kind of misogynistic, almost, and very much at times, very sexist kind of 
uh, world where you were coming in going, I'm a professional, I'm a writer. No, I'm not going to sleep with you, but I'm going to write about what a pig you are. You know, like, so like, do you know what I mean? Like, uh, like, so was it hard for you to, to get, get there? And did you always get that respect that you wanted from all the artists or were there, and and were there still ones that kind of were like, Oh, she's a chick. Well, I mean, you know, I've been either lucky or I carry myself in a certain way where, you know, I didn't run into a lot of really bad situations. And I also, I kind of, not that I didn't take everyone seriously, but a lot of the lyrics and and things I thought were, you know, pretty goofy. And I thought the bands didn't necessarily believe in them. Like even with, you know, in the early days of, body count and iced tea when I interviewed mm-hmm. him, you know, um, you know, bitches, hoes, whatever he was talking about. And even more recently, they had this on bitch in the pit, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I, I know <laughs> who, by the way, he's like a teddy bear. You yeah, know, I know. Like, I know he has, you know, a wife, he loves his daughter. Um, I mean, there were definitely bad men, but I think most of them were just, you know, kind of going along with the, the sentiment of the times, which was party, have fun. I don't think it was like, let's disrespect these women. Um, but I mean, that said, there definitely were times when I wasn't respected. Not a lot, though. I mean, I can almost remember all of them. I mean, once when I it's funny, I was leaving a backstage at a club mm-hmm. and someone yelled at me something nasty, a guy like, oh, there's that writer, Catherine, leaving backstage. She must be a slut or sleeping with so and so or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that almost never happened to me. I think I'm really lucky. And also you have to remember there were, it wasn't just the musicians. There were uh, record label guys, editors, all that, who were also in, in that horrible misogynistic mindset. A lot of women have written about it. There's one woman, I can't remember her full name, Dorothy, something she wrote a whole book about. I think she was in A&R departments. Oh, no, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, I'll find that and send that to you. Um, And also there were instances when someone who I worked with, uh, a man, um, he was inappropriate with some of my coworkers, but Mm -hmm. not with me. So I think that, you know, it made me realize that people, men do prey on the kind of weak, young, eager to please. And I don't think I was ever necessarily necessarily that because I don't know if it's because, you know, of how I was raised or because I had a journalism degree and I felt like I belong here, you know, so I didn't run into too much of it. And when I did, like, I think there's a a story I tell and and I've told it, it's not really a great story, but it's all I got Um, in the nothing but a good time book. You know how Brett Michaels from Poison propositioned me during an interview Mm -hmm. and I laughed it off because I'm like, I I still don't know if he was serious or not. Maybe he was. (laughs) Which, by the way, that's a great book. Yes, it's a really good book. Yeah. It's a really good book. I was excited. I, you know, I got to tell a few stories and read a few chapters ahead of publication for them. And it was really great. That's mm-hmm. um, Tom Beaujour and um, Rich. Yeah. So, no, I love that question. It's something I've been thinking about more and more. I did have one definite Me Too moment mm-hmm. where I don't even know what the guy's intention was, but I was on the road with a band, which as you can imagine is sort of a 
you know, a fraught situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think it happens that much anymore. But back in the day, journalists got to go, you know, on tour buses, on trips, on whatever with bands, the record labels would pay. It was Mm -hmm. super fun, as you can imagine. And I dream of mine, by the way, yeah, yes, like my, I, mean, I, I, I want to do the whole almost famous thing, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I came through Atlanta with typo negative. I remember being right. parked in a parking lot and then I was in the front of the bus and I looked for the back and there was Pete Steele and his tiny black underwear, like lifting weights. I'm like, oh, this is my job. Um, like, this doesn't suck too bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the one time when I, in a situation when I was on the road with a band like that and a guy basically kind of attacked me, I mean, physically jumped on me. We were, mm-hmm. I opened the door to my hotel room and he jumped on me and we fell to the ground. And I don't know what his goal, I mean, we'd both been out drinking the whole band. We were all out drinking, having fun. Mm-hmm. We've gone back to our rooms and then he knocked. I'm like, what's up? So I don't know if his, you know, they've been kind of giving me, harassing me in kind of a fun journalistic way in which I could mm-hmm. take kind of, what's the right word? Hazing, I guess. Nothing crazy. Right, no. right. Like I was in a frat and they were forcing me to drink 30 gallons. But, you know, I was definitely like, what the fuck? And I managed to fight him off and push him out the door. But and I so I don't know what his intention was. Was it to scare mm-hmm. me? Was it to rape me? Was it to, I don't know. And I didn't tell anyone. And I think, you know, I don't know if it traumatized me, but it was when I look back now, I'm like, what the fuck? What if I hadn't fought him off? What if I was too drunk? What would have happened? Or, um, you know, if I wasn't me, what if it was someone else? It's so that that should never be allowed. But I was too scared for my job and my mm-hmm. professionalism. And I wouldn't if I had told someone they would have been like, oh, it's because you're a woman. And, you know, they were. I don't know, but I, I knew I just instinctively knew I couldn't tell anyone what happened and I never did until now. No, I mean I've told about it in the last couple right. of years when the Me yeah. Too started. Um yeah. but that was the worst thing that had happened really. Um mm-hmm. you know, and as I say, it's you know, I know it well, I'll I'll tell you another story. It's rough because some women definitely had gotten into music journalism or or that world to to meet boyfriends or sleep with guys. Mm-hmm. And when I was an editor at a, I don't know if it was rip or at rock beat, which was the magazine before rip. Mm-hmm. One of our writers was also um, a porn actress and she was, I know. And you think the guys are like, oh, how exciting, you know, but she was making <laughs> guys feel uncomfortable by coming on to them. And mm-hmm. someone came to me and said, your writer's making our band uncomfortable. And I had to fire her. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about, I mean, the reverse, not, not double reverse. standard. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. They felt, they felt empowered to say your, your girls go out of line instead of mm-hmm. when I should have gone your boys out of line. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was, how dare a woman make a man uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. So it was definitely a fucked up in equal scene, but I was either, you know, lucky or skilled enough at making mm-hmm. sure people didn't really, I kind of, I think my, um, my tap was a, I mean, it sounds very contrived, but it wasn't. I mean, I think I was just like one of the guys, sort of. That's kind of how I was, I think. I feel like I still am. Like, I'll sit there with you and and drink beers and mm-hmm. carry your guitar case or do whatever. I'm not going to be like, um, you know, on the outside, precious or anything. I just kind of, I hang with the hang, I guess. And so maybe right. that's where people feel more comfortable and, and where they haven't treated me as... Uh, 
you know, different, I guess, than they would any, any dude. So it's funny because you and I had talked about this a while ago, especially when the Me Too movement kind of kicked in. And I remember you and I were kind of having you know, a personal conversation about it. And it was right around the time The Dirt came out, the movie. Yes. And there was that one. And I, th- if I'm not, but what didn't you write? You wrote a piece about that. It was kind of like the exploitation of like that or not the exploitation. It was, it was like this sensationalism. Of Sexism that. in the music. Yes. Music. That's uh, yeah. 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 Um, I think that was in variety, I believe. And I, I, yes. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And I talked to some of the people at the label cause they had, um, I think uh, let's see, Motley were on a lecture. They might've had a female president at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'd had some female publicists and other people throughout the years. And I just talked to some of them. And I think more so like the women at, at the higher levels at the labels, I think they found that their ideas were kind of shunted aside, I mm-hmm. think more so than, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't misogyny. It was dismissal, well, which is misogyny, I guess it was, it just, it wasn't necessary. Well, Wait, back up and erase all of that. Yes, it was misogynistic sexism, whatever. But it was mm-hmm. in the war room where it's like, oh, thanks for that. Next. And then turn to what the men have to say. And then so, the guy says the same thing. And they're yes. like, that's brilliant. Run with exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. that was my idea. <laughs> right. Yeah, very much so. Um, ugh. Yeah, the, you know, definitely the the old boys network sort of thing, which, you know, <clears throat> people complain about in lots of organizations, you know, from the Grammys to record labels to whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a member of a lot of these organizations, you know, the Recording Academy, and I like to kind of uh, fight from within, I suppose, you know, see if we can change things. Um, but that's the good thing, because, you know, it. it I don't know. It was that there was like an old quote. I wish I could remember who who said it though. But it was like you know every every revolution starts with one, you know, like and it just you know it takes one to get a one more person involved, and then so and so and so and so and kind of like what you were talking about. I, I did an interview with um, a, a, an artist. Her name is uh, Sandy Soraya. I don't know if you remember yes, Soraya from uh, the, the 88 to like 91, 92. And she is, a, she was amazing to talk to, but her story was so similar and being a female artist in a male dominant world, not just that though, but also being a female artist who didn't want to be, showcased as a female artist you know right. she struggled and the ba- basically it was her 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 reluctance to cave in to what the label and people wanted her to be uh-huh. is what ended up being the demise of her band which was sad but wow. all these years well you know they came out around the same time, say like, you know, artists like Femme Fatale came out where Lorraine Lewis was on the cover wearing, neg- you know, lingerie and a teddy. And right. Sandy Soraya was like, no, I want to be up against a wall with the band and wearing denim and leather also. And they were just like, if you if you don't do this, like, we're not going to push your band. Wow. And, 
but she had a two album legacy that was great music. And to this day, even talking to her, she said it's a very sore topic for her to discuss, but that she's so glad that she never caved in, you know, and has that changed much? I mean, we like, we like to think it has, but right. I mean, that's really, uh, wow. That's rough. No, I don't think, well, it's changed in that the old record company model has changed and so many artists are making music on their own or they don't, you know, they're not handed $200,000 by, you know, Warner records and told to go shopping and buy this and that. So I think the whole culture has changed a little bit. I ask, uh, I, I do still ask women that question, even though it's, weird because I'm a woman. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think who I talked to most recently. I mean, recently I I interviewed Janice Ian. (laughs) Uh, I didn't ask her that question because, you know, I love, she's one of my folk heroes. Yeah. Kind and cool. But I mean, I, you know, I guess folk folk artists were okay. wearing turtlenecks. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think, even when I've interviewed Cherie Curry, you know, in recent years and the runaways, Mm -hmm. You know, the most famous photo of her is in the, I guess, the white bustier on stage, you know, the white silk. Um, Mm -hmm. And she said she only wore that at like one show. And now it's like the thing that follows her forever. Mm -hmm. And now she's definitely a jeans and T-shirt kind of person, which Mm -hmm. probably she always was. (laughs) Um, Right. So now, obviously, that she's got a legacy and a history and she's an older woman, you know, not. 18 anymore, not uh, jailbait runaway. She can do what she wants. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think for Kitty, like a band like that, like the, the, the metal band. I think, you know, I think it's changed a little bit. I think it has changed a little bit that women are stronger. Men are asking less because they realize it's wrong and they wouldn't ask a guy band to, you know, show some more skin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, that, that I, I wish I had a better answer. It comes up for me all the time and I struggle with the right way to ask it. Um, and in fact, I, I interviewed, um, who was it? I, I interviewed a woman recently from the eighties metal era who didn't become big. And I asked her about that. She's like, no, I wore, you know, tight jeans and leather and whatever. And I saw a photo and she was like, you say she was just like, one of the guys in the band with the arms crossed against the wall that said they didn't make it big, but I think if she was in a bustier, it wouldn't have mattered. It was just, you know, a timing thing. It wasn't because she uh, wasn't showing cleavage. Yeah. So I know that that wasn't an answer, but no, that actually totally was because I I think one of the things I love that where you were going with it is that it's, Sometimes they, things have changed a little bit, but it also reminds you of how far behind we've gotten. It's almost like for every step forward you take, you take two steps back, you know? And, yeah, I mean, you know. I, I don't follow Billie, <clears throat> Billie Eilish super closely, but I know mm-hmm. for her early years, she definitely wore huge baggy T-shirts and sweatshirts and wanted to cover herself. Mm-hmm. And then when she appeared in form-fitting clothes, people were like, right. Even her fans, you know, and and so she was like, I want to wear what I want to wear and mm-hmm. it be shocking or commented on that much. But 
yeah, I don't know if it will ever go away just because there are men and women who like to look their version of attractive and that's a lot of skin or no skin. They should be allowed to do it and not shamed either way. You know, it's really interesting because I, you know, again, you and I have talked about this is that, you know, I'm super obsessed with, you know, like occult rock and, um, you know, psychedelic rock, especially uh, newer bands. And some of the, my favorite bands of the past decade or so have all been fronted by females, but it seems to be tied into this genre where it's not a very sexual kind of music, you know, or I mean, like, you know, like, like children of the sun, Jess and the ancient ones, uh, lycanthropy from Sweden. I mean, there's some incredible galley beggar as a folk psychedelic folk rock band from the UK, but like, you know, these incredible talented female vocalists and even lyricists, Mm -hmm. but they kind of have that Soraya thing, like what I was talking about where they, they're not at the forefront and the band's blurred in the background or whatever, but they're also not huge. You know what I mean? And it seems like that these bands that are playing this kind of music are more content being considered artists than being rock stars. And I used to think of that as a cop-out when I first started writing was that why wouldn't anybody want to be a rock star why wouldn't you want the fucking huge tour bus and you know play theaters and arenas but the more i got to know these artists the the less it became about that especially for younger bands and the more it became about we we want to break even you know we want to do this for a living and make the music that we like exactly um yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and I want to check out a few of the bands that I don't know that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess the, the line between image and, and who you are, especially in a cult rock or something like if I was just thinking about Twin Temple, right? Oh, um, that's another one. Yeah. Right. But I mean, she and I'm forgetting her name, but I think they're very cool. Alexandra. Um, yeah. You know, she's, they're different. I mean, she is sex. I think she dresses sexy and they have a, but they have a whole sexy kind of shtick. And I think it is a shtick because they're on tour with ghosts and they're, they're not dissimilar. In fact, that they, they have a whole show that is not, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was going to say not a hundred percent real, but that's wrong. Um, I, I think twin temple are very interested and follow what they sing about and are interested in occult things like that. But, um, I don't know. So are you sort of saying that maybe the, the image or way some of the front women look is holding them back from bigger success? You or- know, in, in, in some ways, I think that it's I think it might be a couple of things going on with that, because I feel like. And again, maybe it's that the times have changed and not only has the time changed, but the motives have changed for a lot of these artists, you know, like and again, like, I mean. You know, I don't want to be a judgmental man, you know, and assume things, but like, you know, I mean, like friends, like, like to go back to, you know, the nineties, like Lorraine Lewis, again, she always comes up because to me, she was the one that stuck out like a sore thumb. I was like, so did Lorraine Lewis really want to dress in a baby doll outfit and be, you know, 
spanking her ass with a tambourine in the video, you know, or like, was that something that was like, I think okay. you should ask her. I mean, she's out there, yeah. right? And she's actually fronting vixen now yes, or yes, yes, yes yeah but do you know what i mean so it's like yes. it's like did you want to do that or was that kind of a way for I you to know. say like that would that would make me big you know that's a good question i mean for me personally i'm not a performer but if i looked that good and had that talent i'd like to think i would show it off like you know david lee rothen with assless chaps and i guess he thought his chest hair looked great or whatever. So, uh, I mean, to be a front person, a lot of times you do have that, uh, you know, outgoing, look at me personality. Mm -hmm. And so men, men or women, I think definitely, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. like your pal, Sebastian Bach. Um, (laughs) 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 So I'm going to say this totally like on the record too, because nothing makes me happier. Then yes. things Sebastian Bach and Vince Neil turn out fat and ugly like that has been like because when I was a kid, every girl I wanted to date, like held those two at the standard. And now when I see them, I go, <laughs> look at well, that. that said, I have seen Sebastian Bach is on a weight loss journey and he's been showing it online and he's looking good i've seen it <laughs> well maybe we might maybe me and old sebastian can bond over that too you know although right, you know right. and i have to say i do love his political stance that he's been very vocal about that you know yeah but i mean but, if, I mean, if Sebastian was a woman he would definitely be wearing low-cut stuff and mini skirts and high heels and mm-hmm. he does his or he did his man version of it when he was you know young and, and wild so R- Right. I mean, you know, and that's the funny thing is that we talked about, hold on a second, Ozzy, it's okay, buddy. Um, my neighbor's outside playing basketball, so uh, Ozzy's barking. But, um, hey, buddy, I'm on, I'm on with Aunt Cat, okay? But, um, you <laughs> good know, boy, Ozzy. good boy, Ozzy, you're a good boy. Yeah. But, you know, that's an interesting question because I feel like you kind of had me put my foot in my mouth there a little bit about, about the whole, like, you know, are these... You know, bands not big because they're not putting on the sexy front. But maybe it's that that specific kind of music doesn't come with that kind of mentality or expectation from fans of that kind of music. You know, like I would agree. And also, I mean, it's not none of those bands are, you know, high on the whatever the album charts or whatever you would judge commercial success by. It's not, you know, there's a there's an alternative chart. There's not like a, you know, a, a Southern Gothic dark folk rock chart or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a niche, it's more of a niche thing, which is too bad, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I think they're probably at the, rising to the top of their respective games and genres. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That is, it is something interesting to think about. Like, could they get to the next level where they are, you know, um, selling hundreds of thousands and, and all that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. there's another thing we could mention, which is like Revolver or Magazine or whoever mm-hmm. did the hottest women in metal, I think. I, wanna, I think it was Revolver. I actually think they even went as far as to say like the hottest chicks in metal or yeah. something like that, which I was just right. like, hi, welcome to 1986. Yeah. So. You know? You know, you don't want to, if you're an artist, you don't want to say no to that because you want to be on the cover of a magazine and have people 
find out about you and, and check out your music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know enough about those issues to, uh, I mean, specific magazine issues, <laughs> that is, mm-hmm. to say, like, I can't remember who was wearing what on the cover, mm-hmm. you know, or, or the photo shoot, they said, you know, a little more skin here or whatever for those covers. Right. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking that that's not going to happen now. And I also don't know about all the men's magazines like Maxim and all that stuff who, you know, uh, had hot women on the cover. I don't even know if those are still around. And do you even, uh, I remember stuff magazine. Do you remember that? Uh, I think, I feel like that, that was like do. a, it was like an offshoot of Maxim. I think maybe was it? It was- I remember the title, but I don't remember what it was focusing it, on. It, it, I was focusing on, TNA basically and okay. you know and I, I'm going to be guilty I had actually had a subscription to that magazine that I think my if I remember correctly I think my wife actually got me the subscription <laughs> which is even funnier but there's so many things that I can't imagine seeing fly you know in, in, in you know in this even just within the past five years or so yeah, I agree. Um, I hope so. And if a woman does show up on a cover wearing that, I hope it was her idea and what she wanted to do, you know, and that she didn't feel she had to do it for any reason. Right. Uh, her own reasons. Oh, I totally agree. You know, and I mean, and just for the record, if I looked like David Lee Roth did in like 83, <laughs> I would be without a shirt right now. And I yes. just be like, look at me. You right. Know? But trust me right now, you don't want to see what's going on under this, you know, I mean, especially while sitting down, it's pretty pretty brutal, but, uh, you know, and to to kind of go back again, I I always love to try to bring it back full circle. We were talking about just all the different genres of music and whatnot. You were working right at the forefront when the climate was starting to change within music, you know, like, you know, what would end up becoming grunge, you know, like right. you started to see. And I remember uh, even reading one of your pieces in uh, 91, I believe it was about, it was about either grunge or maybe it was about a specific band. I can't remember, but like you saw it coming probably before a lot of us did as far as fans. So I guess the big question is did grunge kill metal or was it, you know, right. my personal opinion was that it exposed a lot of really crappy music. <laughs> if that makes sense, yeah. you know, like, so what was your opinion on it? Like, well, um, I think my opinion maybe has changed and modified over the years, but I will say, I mean, just from being in the middle of it toward the later eighties, there were, you know, crappier and crappier bands getting signed with less and less uh, to offer. You know, they were just like parodies of, of the earlier bands, you know, like a mm-hmm. fifth generation lousy poison, you know, mm-hmm. and you mean like tough. Hi, <laughs> Stevie Rochelle. Mentioning <laughs> um, no, but so, yeah, that was definitely, you know, pretty boy Floyd. I don't know. I mean, I, I know these bands still. That's have a bands great one out there. Um, but the scene was oversaturated, uh, lame, very lame. And I saw that as a journalist, as a fan, as a whatever. Um, so I think it needed to die, but it wasn't dying. But 
grunge provided the you know kick in the ass to kick it out the door. I mean, when I I've told this story before, but when my friend at Geffen Records, the publicist Lisa Gladfelter, um, she's like, I've got this advanced cassette, and I don't know, I think it might really be something, and she gave me their Nirvana advanced cassette of Nevermind, and I listened to it, and I'm like, oh my god, this is so good. I never thought, oh, this is kicking, you know, hair metal out the door. I just thought, wow, this is so fucking cool and raw and great. I would have, you know, if I heard it now, I would feel that way too, I'm sure. Um, but then a lot of people say, and I can't speak for the behind the scenes, everything, but that MTV, you know, took off the hair metal, put on the grunge. And that was a huge influence on, you know, ending hair metal and, you know, putting on the, uh, Team Spirit video, you know, and then Allison James and, and all that stuff was was coming up. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it definitely had to go away. It didn't intentionally kill it, but I think it was just, you know, that, that, that Sunset Strip scene was limping along in a lame way and something more real came along and took its place. It's probably the, the natural course of things. But it did seem abrupt to the, the hardcore fans of that genre, I think. And it was a pretty, you know, definitive dividing line between partying hair metal and, and Nirvana. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw an early, I don't know, not an early Nirvana show, but an early show for them after they got a deal. I saw them at the Roxy in L.A., which is, you know, 300 people or less than 500 for sure. Mm-hmm. And um you know, it was super exciting. And I suppose if I was like a, a good pundit journalist, I would be like, that was the moment it all changed. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, but it, it was something that needed to change and it did. Yeah, it was kind of, it's, it's interesting though. I working on a project, which I told you about, which involves a lot of these eighties bands. And I, I asked them that same question pretty much, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, what happened to your career in the late 80s? What happened? One of the guys actually said he felt AIDS had a big part in killing the scene, which he's the only person who's ever said that to me. But I thought about it. Hmm. You know, if you're a smart person, when AIDS came around, you you hopefully stopped having crazy wild sex with everyone or you started using condoms or something. It was a dampening effect on the the, the halcyon days of rock and roll. Um, I don't think that did put an end to it, but I thought that was an interesting take and it made sense because I remember when, I mean, you're too, what year were you born? You're too young, but. No, I was, I was, I was born in 73. So I, I do remember right. that, that uh, I was probably about 12 or so when right. I, when I was, when I had first even heard about AIDS. And so, right. so yeah, know, for, for me, it's just, right around that time you're learning about sex. So, of right. course, being the Nancy Reagan era that I was 12 right. years old, I was I was horrified of girls. I was horrified of drugs. Like I had no fun until I was like 20, you know, so. Well, I mean, for those of us or, or the bands who were having the sex and drugs and rock and roll era mm-hmm. and then to have it like, oh, my God, that lifestyle is going to kill you. That is kind of if you're smart and you pay attention, that is kind of a big like you know, a bucket of cold water thrown on everything. Yeah. Um, I thought that was, it gave me, it gave me some thought. Cause I remember having my first AIDS test and being mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, you know, and I was fine and I continued to test and, you know, mm-hmm. but it was, a, it was definitely a scary time. I was not, 
you know, I, I generally had long-term boyfriends and I wasn't out there being, uh, you know, like, like a, a band member or anything, but still mm-hmm. it was uh, a scary thought. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting that this, this guy brought that up. And, you know, and I just read somewhere recently, I can't remember if it was a quote from a band or, uh, or if it was an article or whatever, but some, but what I remember it saying was that so many people think that it just happened. Like that one day Nirvana put out an album and all the other bands were just like, you know, that like, it was such a gradual thing. And that kind of like what you said, like, it was almost like kind of like evolution, you know, or like, you know, the, the dying off of the dinosaurs, you know, because yes. I, and actually that was the comparison that I read was that they were like, you know, oh, it was Chuck Klosterman. I was, oh. I, I, I just, I just reread Fargo Rock City right. for like the fifth time. And, um, and he says that he was like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, a meteor didn't crash into the you know earth and then the dinosaurs died an hour later, you know, it was like, He's like, you know, they they starved and they slowly trotted across the world and then they got stuck in tar. And he was just like, it was kind of the same with the music scene, because some of those bands actually luckily came out breathing once the, you know, everything right. kind of you know, started to recycle again. But it suddenly seems to be like, you know. Before I remember it being called grunge, like I just remember thinking like, wow, Pearl Jam sounds like a classic rock band. Like, yeah, yeah Soundgarden is pretty much Black Sabbath. Exactly. Yeah, Alice in Chains is fucking cool metal, you know? And so yeah. it was almost like these bands were kind of coming in and doing stuff better, you know, like, I don't know, like Pearl, like Pearl Jam was better than Tattoo Rodeo and Alice in Chains was better than, you know, like, you know, I mean, Alice in Chains was actually doing better than, say, like, I don't know, like Annihilator or whatever, even though they weren't the same metal, you know. And yeah, then, yeah. of course, you had Nirvana, who was doing something cooler than, I don't know, slamming Gladys or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Oh, I love you. There you go. I love you. They were like the, they were like the hippie kind of, but do you know what I mean? So it seemed like that a lot of these bands were kind of coming in and doing something similar, but way better. And like, and they were, they were more transparent, you know, they were like, we don't want to get laid. We just want to make music and pout and bitch about being rock stars, you know, on our gigantic tour buses and <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was just interesting to me to, to hear from you that perspective uh, from being on the inside, because what I got out of that is that it didn't doesn't seem much different than how we saw it. From no, the outside. I don't think so. And yeah, I really think that like MTV can't be underestimated because, you know, people like you who were not living in L.A., um, you know, you got magazines and you got MTV and you could see that, you know, it, it wasn't um, Europe and and, you know, uh, Cinderella and whoever anymore. And that, uh, you know, what was in play was this newer kind of old school rock. Right. Um, yeah. And, and like I said, I think 
Well, when you said some of the bands emerged, the bands that emerged were the early wave of the L.A. scene, which was Motley Crue and Rad and all the bands from the first wave when it was still, um, you know, not pale imitations of that. The pale imitations did ultimately go away, but the originators uh, pretty much stuck around, I think. Um, Right. Yeah. And those seem to be the ones that even to this day are the ones that get mentioned, you know, and I know I was dogging on like, uh, you know, joking like about tattoo rodeo and bands like that. Though, right. But like those are bands that I actually did like, though. But there's probably a reason why you hear of Motley Crue and Rat and Wasp and Cinderella and Twisted Sister and whatever. Right. And you and you don't hear so much about tough and tattoo rodeo and right. pretty boy floyd because well, what about uh, I, mean, I think a mutual friend of ours what about dangerous toys where do they, <clears throat> where do they fit in see Am I right me, in thinking you like them oh i well i was a huge i still am a huge fan of dangerous toys and yeah, um, i was a fan as well i mean i think they were just on the monsters of rock cruise i think or jason they were they actually yeah. were and matter of fact uh the lead singer and guitar player for uh but well, the guitar slash singer from a rhino bucket sat in with them during one of their uh sets and right brian you know, Forsyth or george delivo george delivo george, george yeah. delivo yeah I love george. yes but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before when i was like you know to me that whole movement was something in, in its own because you know you had that whole warrant pretty boy floyd you know the kind of where do bullet boys fit in that? you know oh now see now bullet boys to me <laughs> is an anomaly because bullet boys kind like had the look right but they were so much better than many of their band their peers like yeah, to, you know true. They, well, yeah. they were like van halen Ooh. you know in the sense that like they had the look but like if you put bullet boys on stage with a, you know I don't know, like, you know, again, any of those like second tier, third tier bands that were kind of their peers, right. they were going to blow them away. I mean, that's just my opinion, you know, right. and Indeed. at times I would almost consider Bullet Boys to be close to that, more close to the Dangerous Toys junkyard yes. thing, you know, because, <laughs> you know, other than the Bullet Boys actually were pretty decent looking, you know, you know. Jason McMaster, I love you to death, man. But goddamn, Dangerous Toys was one of the ugliest fucking bands I have ever seen. I mean, Dangerous Toys, Junkyard, Circus of Power. I mean, those dudes were gnarly. So, of course, when I saw those bands, I was like, well, shit, I can look like that. That's pretty. I mean, I pretty much already do, you know? And so to me, that became a whole other. Uh, movement in itself which and i think maybe it's because those bands didn't achieve the status or the popularity that bands like poison and warrant did that when that whole scene kind of became a joke they didn't become a joke because they weren't big enough to actually be made fun of in the first place yeah or cheesy enough you know i think we've talked about that that genre whatever that genre is is I just call it good old fashioned sleaze. Yes, the one I like. And included in that are um, Rock City Angels, Little Caesar. um, Little Caesar was so. Four Horsemen. Um, There's a whole bunch of bands. Like the Dirtbag Street Tattoo Rock. That was what I liked. It was more blues based in general. Mm -hmm. There was an image, but it was more biker 
biker image than, you know, hairspray and neon. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's harder to make fun of that because <laughs> it's less contrived, I guess, in general. Um, yeah. And those are still a lot of my favorite bands. Yeah. I always, I always thought, yeah. Matter of fact, I remember when I went to go see Dangerous Toys and Junkyard together. Oh, right. You know, like they were doing a tour they played here in Atlanta at the Roxy Theater and I was in high school and I totally showed up in my, you know, my denim jacket that had that I wrote trash on the back of like Alice Cooper's, you know, and um, like covered in buttons. And they were all these hot women at the show, girls, and they were just like going nuts over them. But then there was also all these like gnarly guys. And I remember looking at my friend going, dude, there's totally a chance that we'll get laid in our lifetime if <laughs> these women love right. these guys. Yep, yep, so yep. it seemed more attainable and real, you know? So it's like, to me, it was like the difference between seeing the Ramones and Aerosmith, you know, mm. like, or even the Ramones and Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden looked okay. impossible. The Ramones was like, I can do that by Friday. Yes. <laughs> you know, and do it just as good. But like, you know, you know, so that whole scene was a very intriguing scene to me. And it's still a scene that I love seeing these bands still popping up. You know, Dangerous Toys, you know, Junkyard's been touring and put out yeah. new music. Little Caesar's been doing shows yeah, over the I, past decade. You know, you know, those, um, those are the that I was close with, you know, I wrote their bios. I wrote early articles. I hung out with them. I had a boyfriend who shared rehearsal spaces with them. So those were definitely, that was definitely my people and my scene more, way more so than the sunset strip yeah. thing. Um, and surprisingly, those guys were like the least of the misogynist sexist guys. Like those guys were more like, you know, let's do shots. Right, play right. some pool, exactly. you know. I mean, that said, there was. I have a friend who did have a, a, a me too moment with one of those, with a member of one of those bands, and the guy yeah. apparently had, you know, kind of been inappropriate with other women too. So it, mm -hmm. it is everywhere. Um, it's 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 totally everywhere. But yeah, but that's you're gonna laugh, and I'm gonna totally keep this in the interview. Uh -oh. I just got a press release email about little Caesar saying they're set to re-release American dream. I saw that. I saw that <laughs> it too. literally just popped up on my screen. Very exciting. I know. I saw that as well. Um, All right. I might have to try to see if I can get Ron on the show now. Cause I feel like it's been like, like his ears must be burning at this Ron point. Young, you know? Come on down. <laughs> Seriously. Oh my God. That. Kat, I love talking to you so much and you have a life to live after this, but I do have a couple of like quick shot sure. questions for you that I've, so what's one of the worst interviews you've ever had? This is more for me, by the way. So right. I don't care if the people listening care about this, but this is for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess over the years I've had a few where people were just kind of disinterested or disinterested or not good interviews. Um, I've hardly had any awful interviews. I will say one of my Danzig interviews, he got really angry at me because I was late to the interview and it was at his house. And, uh, I mean, I got lost. I don't know what it was. And so he kind of just like played pinball and wouldn't look at me while I'm trying to ask him questions. And that was awkward. And I felt bad because it was my fault for being late. So that was just, 
he was, yeah, he was kind of mean to me. So that was very rough. Um, Mm. You know, I haven't had any where people have said, fuck you and hung up. And I interviewed Tom Waits and his publicist said, you know, he's hung up on writers. He's done this. He's done. I was so freaked out that I prepared so carefully and he did hang up and we had a nice conversation, but I was like sweating. Like, you know, I was in a pool by the end of it. I was sweating so much. Um, I also, yeah, I, there's been so few interviews that have been bad, bad, bad. So, um, I know, I wish I had a better answer for you. Um, I'm kind of glad you don't because I mean, ask that question too. And I've only ever had one that I can actually think of that was well, actually I'll, I'll bring one up by name, but it's not really a bad interview, but I'll bring this up by name. So there's a, a guy on the LA scene named Rick Fox legendary. He had a band called sin. He was in Steeler. He's everywhere. So wasn't he in sister, sister also with Blackie Lawless or am I just just called sister sister. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Randy Piper, Tony rich, Richard Richards. Yeah. 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 So like 30 years ago or whatever, I said, I don't know if it was Rick Fox's sin or whatever. I said, I wrote something negative about his band. Um, And somehow he found out where I worked and came to my office to confront me about it. And I was terrified. I'm like, you know, people get murdered. Not that he was going to do that, but I mean, you know, people get upset. And I told there was the front desk. I'm like, do not let this guy back. I don't know who he is, what he is. So that was 30 years ago. And then cut to 2021 and there's a project where they're like, oh, here's your list of interviews. We're focusing on these bands from the eighties. And then Rick Fox was there. And I told the person hiring me, I don't know what, you know, something happened years ago. I'm sure he forgot it. Then I get a message back. He didn't forget it. He doesn't want to talk to you. I'm like, Oh shit. 30 years. (laughs) I don't remember what I wrote. And so then I'm like, I have nothing against him. So I wrote like a little, I don't even remember what happened back then. I'd love to talk to you. And he's like, that's great. Same here. And we talked for over two hours. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we're buddies, but we, you know, I I can text him and we can talk and, um, you know, so anyway, that was, that was a scary thing that kind of dodged me for years. I'm like, Oh, there's one guy out there who hates me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now, you know, we've matured and, and, you know, come to terms. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I have a few, yeah. but luckily none of them care too much to actually find they out where I live house to try and be like, I don't know. I do have to say that if Sebastian Bach showed up at my house like that'd be pretty fucking cool, man, because, right. you know, I'd invite him in for a drink, you know, right. and some, yeah, some snacks and I'm sure we'd be OK. But exactly. yeah. I mean, what about the what about the polar opposite, though? Like what has been like? one of the most amazing ones, like where you're just like the bar has been set so high for talking to this particular artist that man, you're making me think way too much. This is wow. This is how I'm going to get you going for the day. Well, you know who I love, you know, well, here's another band that we forgot to mention. And I know, I know you had to have loved them. Mm -hmm. A person that I love talking to so much that I even brought him in as a writer at one point was Greg Strumka from Raging Slab. Do you? Oh, I loved Raging. Uh, uh, man, those first two Raging Slab albums to me were yes. just brilliant. Yes. I've never talked to him. I'd love to talk oh. to him. I mean, he's just 
so clever and well-read and well-educated and loved, you know, Black Oak, Arkansas and all, all that kind of Southern stuff that I love too. Mm-hmm. So he was always really, really fun. And actually I, I had my band column and I went on vacation and I had him come in as my substitute columnist. He was just so articulate and funny. We just had such a great vibe. Um, so he was one who was always a pleasure to talk to. Um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed Metallica also, you know, I worked on their, uh, the official Metallica podcast. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed all of them. I have to say mm-hmm. James, especially, um, I, you know, I don't know if that's, uh, weird to say, but I've always had great times with them. Um, man, I'm going to have to think more about this. You know, there's people who you love personally. Um, like there was back in the day, the, the author, and musician Jim Carroll, who wrote People Who Died. Yeah, yeah. Now, I got to interview him when I was in high school. He, he, he died probably 12 years ago now, but um, he freaked me out. I, I guess he was a junkie or a former junkie, and I didn't know anything about drugs, but he, he had that voice, the slow drug. Wasn't that the basket, basketball diaries yeah, or basketball something? Diary. Yeah, yeah. It was about him. Yeah. Into a movie. Um, so he he freaked me out, but it was the interview was done. He was lying on the bed in the Chateau Marmont Hotel. And I was just I was a teenager. Probably I was in college and I was just so scared and excited that like my my not quite my idol, but I was really, really nervous for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have to think more about that. I mean, there's sometimes it's like just weird little bands that you don't know well. And you just end up having such a great conversation because you yeah. talk about things you love. Um, man, I'm going to, I don't even know how many people I've interviewed. I mean, you've interviewed a ton too. So take what you've done and multiply it by, I don't know, eight, 30. 10. Maybe even 300. Seriously. And yeah. How many I mean, people like, do you think you've interviewed? Oh, gosh. You know, for, it's a, it's a dream come true to even think that I can't even count right. anymore, but yeah. you know, I I've had some repeat interviews, which was all to me has always been a very flattering thing when an artist like does not mind speaking to you. I think I've interviewed Jeff Tate three times from okay. Queen, you know, Queens, right. And you know, he has kind of a reputation to some people, you know, especially after the split with the band. Right. Probably the most one of the most fascinating people I've ever spoken with, because, right. you know, he's intimidating. Uh-huh. And the first time I talked to him, I just remember he's like, hello, Don, this is Jeff. <laughs> T. You know, we have an interview today. Like, what are we talking? You know, and all of a sudden I was just like, uh, I love rage for order, you know, like, <laughs> no, I know. it's. Um, but then once you kind of get them into this place that they feel comfortable or like, you know, if you do it kind of like how we're doing now, where you're just having a conversation. Exactly. It's yeah, amazing I, how they completely. Exactly. They change, you know, I mean, I will say ice tea has always been one of my favorite interviews. Uh, Cause he listens. He's so, he listens to what you have to say. He's so articulate. Um, just knows his mind so well. He's really, really interesting and a favorite. And then 
I was asked to write the body count bio for the last record. So something like mm-hmm. that is always flattering. Okay. They like you enough to have you, um, you know, do their bio, which is great. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, I had a great interview with Janice Ian. I mean, we talked about Los Angeles in the seventies and um, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's what a job we have to talk to people you like. For a I love it. It right? kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Like, like you couldn't, I don't think there's enough money in the world. You could pay me to like, not love my experiences with people like you and learning from people like you. And I say people like you learning from you, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, and learning as I go and, you know, just those kinds of experiences is it's, it's priceless, you know, like, you know, if you would have told 15 year old Don that, you know, Jeff Tay would be calling him on the phone to talk or that Jason McMaster would be texting him and bonding over our love for twisted sister. Like, you know, (laughs) for the kid who was not cool, you know, like, you know, I just remember Jason McMaster saying, you know, the coolest kids were the ones that weren't cool. Like we weren't cool when we were kids, we were cool to our own little world, you know? And he goes, and now he's like, we're cool. You know? Right. Right. Well, you know, yeah, very, very good point. That's so interesting. Um, And Dee Snyder is one of the the greatest interviews as well. Um, You know, I've, I've been tweeting D for a year and a half. Uh Uh-huh about doing an interview with me and he keeps ignoring me. I did an interview with JJ French um, at the, towards the end of last year. And that was, that was, was, uh, no, actually that was the highlight of my life was to be able to, to be able to interview the guy that made me want to play music. Good. And we talked for an hour and a half. And I think talked about twisted for maybe 20 minutes. Everything else was just like, he was just such a, straight up New Yorker, you know, incredible. Like he'd have this incredible story. He'd be like, all right, go next one. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I mean, I'm sure Dee's publicist will hook you up whenever he's got something to promote next. You yeah. Know? Well, well, my last question before he goes, you know, you did a great interview with Bruce Dickinson, who was like my, he's on the top of my hit list. You know, can you give me his number? <laughs> I don't think I have it. I gen- you know it's funny I generally don't tell Todd tell Todd to have him call me <laughs> you know it's funny he he just came through town doing his uh, book speaking tour thing and yeah he was here I was also. excited to come down and interview him and all this stuff and I just couldn't make it um, it was kind of last minute but sorry I shouldn't tell you that but uh <laughs> It was a little too close to COVID, to be honest. I didn't get to go either when yeah. he was here. You know, I would have loved to, but um, you know, but yeah. So I'll 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 hound you for some numbers when we get done with this. So no problem, no problem. <laughs> I'll give them all yours too. <laughs> oh, please do. And let me tell you, I've got enough phone numbers in my in my phone that if you know they can end up on bathroom walls if they want to, but they won't. They won't. I promise. <laughs> Got your number, <laughs> bathroom wall. <laughs> Did you ever dial two eight one seven six six eight to find out if that belonged to somebody? Was that the number? No, it is. I'll never forget that. Dial two eight one seven six six eight. No, I didn't. That's like the, up there with eight six seven five three zero nine. I know. Um, 
And that I, memory I, is actually better than the song. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never. I mean, I interviewed Tammy in the, in the very early days of Faster Pussycat. Uh-huh. He actually came to my apartment on foot because he didn't have a car. I was just a broke journalist. And, you know, here I am in my living room with this guy. I don't even, maybe even before they got a deal. So funny. <laughs> Probably raided your pantry. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So funny. <laughs> Well, Kat, this was so great talking to you as always. And I love I love that it, this is an excuse for act- us to actually talk talk, which is great. I we know. don't get them often. But um Thank you. seriously, I- like you've got so much awesome shit coming up and like on your project that's um to be announced. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And you know, that's- thank you. Yeah, there's always things brewing. I mean, there's like two books brewing there's uh you know i'm always writing bios and mm-hmm. uh, you know doing other projects and then of course i my full-time job is with alice cooper so you know it's it doesn't suck that i can't even imagine having alice as a boss like that must be the most amazing thing yeah i mean you know i think i've said this before but he thinks that i'm his boss um you know either way we do a radio show together um no one's anyone's boss i guess i'm the one who's after him to do work so maybe that makes me his boss i'm like you know hey it's radio show time um but no he's so creative it's overwhelming you know he keeps me on my toes no joke he really does you know he could just sit back and do a radio show but he's like let's do this new segment let's do that let's invite you know people message me alice said i could be on his show i'm like oh all right let's put you on the show it's it's uh yeah it's nonstop. he's the best that's um you know and i to close out i have to say like for my birthday one year you made it possible for me to meet Alice when he was here in Atlanta, if you remember. I do. And and he was the sweetest guy. My wife was actually pretty stricken by him. Like, you know, she, he was so charming. But um, I remember when I went to go introduce myself to him and he and he and uh, I was like, hey, I'm Don. I'm a friend of, you know, Catherine Termins. And he goes, I should have known because you've got the whole Southern rock thing going on. here." <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that would be me. <laughs> Yeah, that's so, yes, that's our running joke. I mean, it's, it's no joke that I do love Skinner one of my favorite bands ever. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just play that up. Like whenever he plays Skinner on the show, I kind of nudge him to mention me. And so it's become our, our shtick, but it's true. I do love Skinner. And so when he'll be like, oh, I'm going to play Skinner. And I think Catherine's following their tour bus on a bicycle now. And I'm like, I would if I could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I said, that was pretty awesome. It, yeah. yeah, I think even Lizzie now she was like, "Wow, okay." So he just totally called you out for being a Southern rocker. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I know that's awesome. He knows. He knows. You know my people. He knows my people. He knows your people. Well, well, Kat, thank you so much for doing this, and you know, I'm I'm glad you took a bunch of time out to talk to me. And uh, well, thank you. Now you can get motivated and go do some uh, work and. I, it's yeah. like I've got so much work. I'm kind of paralyzed. I'm just like, what do I, where do I start? Let's just not start. Let's just lie on the sofa. <laughs> just that ADHD yeah. paralysis. You yes, gotta love exactly. it. <laughs> that is, that is sort of where I am. Then I start working at 10 at night, then two in the morning. I'm like, Oh, why do I do this to myself? You know, it's because we're writers. That's what we do. Exactly. You know? It is. And yeah, yeah. Well. I'm not alone at my two in the morning. Take, 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 take. No, every now and then you might get one from me, you know, so, you yeah. know, but, um, 
Well, cool. Well, look, good luck Thanks, with everything. Mom. And like, yeah. you know, I can't fake it. Like, I'm never going to talk to you again. So because like, you know, but like, you know, uh, I have news for you. You're not. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk again soon, but thanks yes. for doing this again. Cause sure. I hope people will get something out of it. It was fun. Yeah, me too. And I look forward to you interviewing all my, my little Caesar backyard friends and hearing what they have to say. So, Oh, well, well, yeah, you're making this list grow, which is great. So, uh, you know, we'll conference about this soon. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Tom. Change, change, change.